Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Concessions with Dan and I. I'm really excited to share this one because our guest is a dear old friend, Kate Eastman, who was an early acting partner of mine in high school who really energized my interest in storytelling at a formative time. We recorded this back in September 2023, and since SAG was right in the middle of striking, we couldn't mention any of Kate's projects as an actor. But the strike is over now, and so you can see Kate's work on the Netflix horror series Archive 81, as well as in the highly anticipated film Maestro with Bradley Cooper, a film that is already racking up a ton of awards and nominations, and that Dan and I will review this week as well on a quick hitter episode dropping this Friday, the same day you can find the film streaming on Netflix. When I asked Kate what movie she wanted to cover on the podcast, there was almost no hesitation for her to choose 1973's The Wicker Man. That being a film that I first watched only fairly recently and really enjoyed, I was excited to dive into it with her and Dan. Please don't forget to tune in next week for a special episode where Dan and I cover my very favorite Christmas movie, French filmmakers Maury and Bastillo's 2007 extreme home invasion slasher, Inside. And I'm serious about that. It's a a Christmas movie in the truest sense. Way more of a Christmas movie than Die Hard, I promise you. If you're enjoying Concessions, please give us a like, a follow, or a rating wherever you happen to be listening. You can also find us online. Dan is on X at Dan Concedes, and I'm on threads at Jared Concessions. Now let's jump on in. Please enjoy Kate, Dan, and myself being... Just giddy to be getting to talk about 1973's folk horror staple, Anthony Schaffer's The Wicker Man. It was upon a llama's night when corn rigs are bonny. Beneath the moon's unclouded light, I held a while to Annie. The time went by with careless heed till tween the late and early. Hey everyone, welcome to Concessions. I am Dan. And I'm Jared, and we're going to approach this episode of the pod gently. Gently, Johnny. Mm. But the only way to do it. Before we do that, we have a guest with us today. Uh, We are joined by Kate Eastman. She is an actor and writer uh, who's appeared in everything from network dramas, streaming series, uh, indie pictures, and uh, now uh, some upcoming uh, kind of prestigious Hollywood stuff. So we're uh, super happy to have Kate here. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Corn rigs and barley rigs and corn rigs for Mary. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Um, well, before we get into any more of that kind of lofty intellectualism from Kate, uh, <laughs> what are we drinking, Dan? Oh, man, I've uh, finally picked up Jared's mantle, and I've got a nice cold Guinness in my hand with a proper, once again, podcast in the visual medium in a Guinness glass. Don't ask me where I got the Guinness so I will not perjure myself, or the Guinness glass. The Guinness I purchased at a store uh, with money, but the glass... Who's to say where I got that class? Five uh, discount. Um, Did it fall into your bag. Perhaps some employee discount side. Okay, it. interesting, interesting. Um, and I'm even I'm getting a little frisky, and I got a little sidecar of some bullet. Uh, oh. Which actually, uh, you probably once again the visual medium. You might not be able to tell, but it's a present my girlfriend gave me, where it's an etching of a map of Seattle in the glass. Oh, that's nice. Very nice. She's a sweet lady. Kate, what um, are we drinking? Yeah, what are you guys drinking? Um. 
We're drinking a Pinot Noir, a 2021 uh, Pinot Noir from uh, Roots called Crosshairs Cuvée. And uh, it was selected via my usual discerning method, which is looking at the bottom shelf of the wines in the wine store where the under $30 bottles are and picking one. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think there'll ever be a, I don't care if I'm making millions. My eyes will never go up when no, wine. No, I mean, it's wine. It tastes, it, I, I will say, you can tell a good wine from a bad wine, like for the first glass. And then after that, it ceases to matter for me at least. But um, yeah, I'm going to be bringing a lot of intellectual rigor to this discussion. <laughs> uh, and that's uh, that's another example of um, my refined oh, and oh. Uh, discerning palate. Wow. No, I, I feel the same way where I'm actually kind of proud that my uh, palate is mediocre, where it's like, yeah. I can tell the difference between bad and good. I can't tell the difference between good and great. And that's fine with me. Like anything past like a $12 bottle, it's like, I don't know, it just tastes like fancier grapes. I got the, the people's tongue. <laughs> people's tongue. <laughs> that's how I always think about your tongue. Yeah. yeah you everybody. Think about my tongue quite a bit. So you're not alone in this. Well, enough about what we've consumed into our bellies. What have we consumed into our souls? Like, other than obviously all of this wonderful Wicker Man content that we'll get to in all of its forms, uh, what's something, Kate, this week that you watched, that you read, that you just took in or experienced that really kind of filled you? Oh, man, that filled me. Um, <laughs> I'm reading. Uh, a book by Miyako Kawakami right now, who wrote this incredible book that I recommend called Breasts and Eggs. And this book is called All the Lovers in the Night. And Miyako Kawakami is a Japanese feminist author um, who writes about Japanese women who like don't want to get married and have babies. Her, I mean, I don't speak Japanese, so I'm reading translations, obviously, but it, she has a really straightforward prose style and then occasionally will just lapse into the most like vivid and like crazy kind of symbolist descriptions of dreams and and visions. That's the only way I can describe it. Like her characters are just sort of like going about their days and like eating their breakfasts and going to work. And then they'll be in conversation and it'll all be very straightforward and polite. And then suddenly like one character will be telling another character about a dream they had that they were a fish and they were like following uh, a light under a water. I don't know. Um, I love her and I can't, I'm not very articulate about it right now because I've had a glass of wine, but that's um, what I'm reading right now. <laughs> yeah. Even just in that time I was, well, you're articulate enough that I was interested in looking it up and kind of digging into a little bit where at least outside of Western lit Japanese lit, some of my favorite stuff, specifically Haruki Murakami, yeah, And uh, even just right on her little Wikipedia's, that's Haruki Murakami's favorite young novelist. So Yeah, and she, she like read him for filth, I think, at one point. Here, mm. someone else talk about what they're going to talk about, because I'm going to pull this up. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I spent most of my week taking in Wicker Man content and <laughs> supplementary Wicker Man content. I read a truly, truly awful novel <laughs> called Ritual that inspired Christopher Lee and Anthony Shaffer to start making the Wicker Man and they, they bought the rights to it. And 
then upon reading it some more, they decided that it wasn't going to be a good basis for their film. So they started from scratch on their own original screenplay. Uh, but the thing that I enjoyed the most, maybe a little bit more on the pedestrian side by comparison, but I read one of Patton Oswalt's books, mm. uh, specifically Silver Screen Fiend, where he talks about this inflection point in his life, like in the 90s, where he was trying really hard to break into stand-up, break into being an actor. What he really wanted to be was a filmmaker. And he got obsessed with going to the New Beverly Theater in L.A. And um, basically, he's, he got so obsessed with watching movies and obsessed with the idea that he would just, like, become a good filmmaker, like, by osmosis, by watching a lot of movies and, and critiquing them, that it, like, almost ruined his career and maybe his life. And I just thought, and at the end, he's like, you know, don't get so obsessed with watching movies. <laughs> and, uh, how, it's just anathema to this podcast, so I thought I had to mention it. Yeah, it's funny because um, uh, a friend of the pod, Jackson, that you know as well, is that was, that's something I've told. I, I think I've told you this, but I don't know if I've told it directly. Is like this is you know on top of the. I just enjoy this for the the sake of it, but that is sort of an exercise of me trying to learn my own writing style is by sitting here talking with other people about like, okay, why do I like this? Why do I not like this? What works here? What doesn't work here? So then I can start kind of building a base of like, okay, well, if I was going to create something myself, what would that look like? Um, and yeah, my, my current strategy of that is like, just watch everything, but don't write anything. Just watch everything. Don't write anything yet. Um, and maybe Patton Oswalt might be a, uh, give me a little bit of wisdom from his past of like, maybe actually start doing the work a little bit too. So there's a great interview. So Kawakami loves Murakami mm. and she interviewed him and basically oh, wow. interrogated him about his, the way he writes women. Oh, terrible. He's garbage. There's an incredible, um, the whole interview is on lithub.com. And so if you want to read it, you should. I'm just going to read a little passage because it's kind of incredible. Mm. So the women in your story trigger metamorphosis in the, in the protagonist. This is Kawakami talking to Murakami. There are many cases where women are presented as gateways or opportunities for transformation. Murakami says, sure, I can see there being elements of that. Kawakami, in these transformations, as long as sex is being posited as a way into an unfamiliar realm, the women when faced with a heterosexual protagonist, have basically no choice but to play the role of sexual partner. Looking at it from a certain angle, I think plenty of readers would argue that women are forever in this situation, forced into an overly sexual role simply because they're women. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Wow. No, <laughs> that's the awesome. whole interview is basically just her doing that, being like, what's up, my guy? Look up so much. <laughs> what's happening here? No, and, like, to and hear her voice. Books, her books are remarkable because they are just completely wall-to-wall -wall the interior life of women. And usually women who are quite lonely and women who don't want children and some and often women who don't even want traditional romantic relationships. And it's just thrilling to read a whole story where like a woman has no desire to play the role of wife, mother, girlfriend, supporter. Mm -hmm. Especially someone who admires his writing but then isn't afraid to challenge him on... Yeah. Uh, yeah, pretty, what, I'm almost done with everything he's written in? Like, yeah, that's a pretty big weak spot. And, like, because I'm not a writer, I couldn't articulate it nearly as well as her as, like, oh, well, he doesn't write women well, where she just, like, gets right to the point right there, which is yeah. um, 
yeah, it's only making me want to check her stuff out even more. Um, yeah, one more time. What 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 is the name of the author and the name of the the novel that you read? Mieko Kawakami. Her big one is Breasts and Eggs, which is about a woman who wants a child but doesn't want to be in a relationship. Her current one, or her most recent one that I'm reading right now, is called. Or maybe it happened. Maybe she wrote this one before. But the book I'm reading right now is called um, All the Lovers in the Night. And she got the Akutagawa Prize, which is, um, that's pretty much like the highest thing you can get in Japan for fiction. Yeah, the shit. Yeah, she, yeah. She's she's her, she, yeah, she's uh, pretty good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Oh, so for mine, this one was actually a little, I don't want to call it a hidden gem, but it's kind of a... It's an example of, you know, something just gets farted out on Hulu, Netflix, what have you, uh, every week. It's like a flavor of the month uh, movie. It gets popular for a week. People talk about it. It goes away. It's usually garbage. And we all move on. Um, but there was one that uh, from a <laughs> couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, that caught my eye. And I just, for some reason, never got around to it. And I'm glad I finally did. Is uh, Do you guys know about the movie They Clone Tyrone? Oh, yeah. I've heard of this. I've heard it's great. But I haven't seen it. It's incredible. Um, it's such an awesome mash of like you have 70s conspiracy thrillers, you've got black exploitation, you've got like this Atlanta sensibility of like Donald Glover. Um, you've got some of the like sort of horror elements that you see you're seeing out of like Jordan Peele or even some like Boots Riley stuff going on. It's just this huge cornucopia of stuff that's just getting piled on top of each other. And uh, Jewel Taylor, this is his debut film, and this is, <clears throat> and he manages it really well. Um, I, I would say the only thing that keeps it from like really good to great is uh, it gets a little heavy-handed towards the end. But honestly, like it's your debut film, like fucking you know, plant your flag. Let, let people know. Making movies is so hard. <laughs> yeah. So it's so, so hard. It's it, miraculous it, that anything is ever good. Truly. <laughs> It got so much goodwill for me through everything. It's especially that miraculous that something was good that's being made under the auspices. I, like, I don't know if it was made with independent producers and then purchased by Netflix, but if made under the auspices of a streamer where they want you to do it so fast for no money, like, and I'm sure, and, and I, I think that there's versions of this in every like sort of iteration of the industry, but the, when things are made with integrity and and point of view and they are under the umbrella of a streamer, I'm like. And that's hurts. exactly this. It's so unapologetically his point of view. And yeah, um, yeah it's and, and it's also like even aside from that, which the best film Jordan Peele would come to, to mind to this, like it has a very strong point of view, but it's also just a good fucking time. Yeah, um, it's just great genre filmmaking. So yeah, they clone Tyrone. Cannot recommend that. Cool, I'll check it out. I, I got really, really slapped in the face with a wonderful example of just, you know, making movies is really difficult. <laughs> uh, and uh, the movie that really illustrated that the best for me recently is a movie called The Wicker Man from two thousand six. <laughs> Written oh, we're not starting. No, we're not starting with no, 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 the version. No, 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 no. I, I have to say that's not that's not the movie we're here to talk about. But if you want to see just how hard it can be to make a movie, and somehow it maybe kind of does, watch that one. But if you want to watch a good movie, <laughs> and you can watch 1973's *The Wicker Man*. Uh, as of the date of this recording, uh, just about to celebrate its 50th anniversary. 
the title card on this actually says Anthony Schaffer's The Wicker Man, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is pretty neat. Uh, love it when the uh, the writer kind of gets uh, gets all the glory. Um, this is a movie that started off as a pet project between Schaffer and Sir Christopher Lee. Uh, Lee had just come off of just already like a decade, decade and a half of just playing, you know, Dracula a bunch of times, and, you know, and the, the Hammer Horror films, which are beloved and are, and are awesome. But he would, Lee was really wanting to do something meatier, something more serious that he could really sink his teeth into, but still. Hey. Uh, Oh, but could still uh, still have his Dracula horror cred, right? And the result uh, is The Wicker Man. It's directed by Robin Hardy, but it kind of seems like Hardy was more of like a director for hire and didn't do a whole lot after this. When uh, Schaffer went on to do like a few more, um, few more like successful projects, and obviously Christopher Lee's career, we can get you know all the way into later. Um, the music, uh, very. Uh, very remarkable uh, is is by Paul Giovanni and trivia. Uh, Giovanni was Schaffer's identical twin brother, Peter's lover at the time. Oh. Uh, Peter and Anthony Schaffer, both of them were like super, super well-regarded playwrights. And then, you know, eventually screenwriters in the seventies, Peter Schaffer, he wrote um, Amadeus uh, oh, that wow. okay. became a very, very good movie after being a wonderful play. He wrote Equus, which um, also amazing. The movie's not quite on like Amadeus level, but the play Equus endures most recently in my mind is when um, Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah, Daniel Radcliffe crushed it for a while just after Harry Potter. That is something that would for sure kind of eliminate any remnants of thinking of him as only Harry Harry Potter, but uh, back to the wicker man by Anthony Schaffer, Peter's brother. Um, It also stars (laughs) Edward Woodward as Sergeant Howie. Mm. Uh, I guess it wants us to think of him as the protagonist. Maybe Uh, also Britt Eklund and Ingrid Pitt uh, in addition to Christopher Lee, when we have a guest on the pod, it's usually because they have chosen the movie. Uh, Kate, why why is it that you wanted to talk about The Wicker Man more than any other movie? Oh man! So my friend Derek Belcham is he's a filmmaker and just a great dude. Um, and he, <laughs> we were at his house, like having some wine, having dinner, and uh, one thing that we'll do toward the end of an evening is we'll just start playing music for each other. And he, he also has an encyclopedic knowledge of film and he started singing. Uh, he was like, you've never heard corn rigs and barley rigs <laughs> for Mary. And I was like, Derek, what are you talking about? And then he started dancing around and going corn rigs and barley rigs. And I was like, Holy shit, what's happening. And then he put on the soundtrack And we were listening to it. And I was like, wait, I'm obsessed with this. And then a week later, I was looking at what was playing at the different uh, indie film houses in New York. And The Wicker Man, the original director's cut, was playing at IFC. And so I immediately called him and was just like, we have to watch The Wicker Man because you wouldn't shut the fuck up about The Wicker Man the other night. (laughs) And and so... (laughs) Cause he really sold me on it. He was like, it's the strangest movie. And I was like, cool. And so then we went and saw it and I couldn't stop thinking about it for 
like weeks afterward. And then I made my friends watch it. Like I was truly obsessed with The Wicker Man. I couldn't stop playing the soundtrack. It's it's just so funny. I truly think it's like the funniest movie. It, it's tonally insane. <laughs> um, it it it's like very cathartic to watch like as a queer person because it just feels like a man who has never heard of anything but being catholic being dropped into like a colony of like queers and he's like, <laughs> he's like where's your church and they're like uh this is the maypole i don't know it was just such a profoundly cathartic watch and i i literally had a blast i also i love horror movies for their tonal weirdness but i can't stand like gore mm. or intense like violence because i'm very sensitive and i get very very upset um and this movie is mostly like uh children singing strange songs and women dancing naked over fires and Howie being like, and everyone being like, "Mm -hmm." and, and, and then at the very end, it has like a deeply unsettling last 10 minutes, which Mm. I also loved, but yeah, it's just a really good time and an unclassifiable movie and my favorite musical. (laughs) Your favorite musical. (laughs) Um, yeah, to your point about like the like that you don't like violence and gore and like I kind of agree with you where yeah. um Jared, we've talked about this before, like the whole I, I think it is a bit of a dismissive label to call things torture porn or or like mm. extremity and stuff like that. It is it is a little dismissive, but I would say where it doesn't upset me, I, I find it cheapening when there are just more artistic ways that you can create that sort of dread or that uh, upsetting atmosphere. And yeah, Wicker Man is definitely an example of that where yeah. I'm trying to think, is there any like explicit bloodshed in this? I don't think so. I can't remember. I don't think so either. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's violence in, in just that he like incapacitates the guy before stealing the, um, stealing the punch costume. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously the, the ending is like deeply violent in a way that doesn't really show the violence at all, but it's certainly physically violent and yeah. Yeah. emotionally violent. Or yeah. the, especially the with cheaper, the animals. The cheaper way would have been to show his body like burning up. Right. So the charred. Yeah. Corpse. And you don't need it. Like, no. Not your brain, point. your brain will create something more awful than anything they could show. <laughs> um, Jared, what about you? Is this your first time seeing this? Have uh, you seen the remake too? Like, what's your experience <laughs> with Wicker Man going into this week, where you broke your brain on Wicker Man content? Why did I break my brain on it? So I'll start a couple of years ago and take you through until like yesterday. <laughs> um, <laughs> I this is the Wicker Man is in the S tier of the pantheon of horror right like it's one of the movies that is the most talked about like when you're cutting your teeth on horror films the wicker man comes up again and again mostly because of the ending i would say from for as long as i can remember since i was you know a young teenager or something i've known how the wicker man ends i didn't get around to seeing it until the right in the middle of covid lockdown i want to say it was like maybe june of 2020 i was having these weekly watch parties uh, just with all my friends that wanted to just remotely where like maybe five or six of us would get together. We would load up a movie into a thing that made sure it was synced for all of us. And then we had our like chat box. Right. 
And we, The Wicker Man was one of the first movies that we chose uh, because none of us had seen it, um, but all of us kind of knew of it. And yeah, Kate, Kate mentioned this a moment ago, but I didn't have any idea that it is a it is a tried and true musical. Like yeah. it is, it is in its bones a musical. And I mean, if you if you know me at all, or if you've like listened to enough concessions, you know that I'm a musical theater guy uh, in a lot of ways. And uh, some of my favorite movies are musicals. Uh, I had no idea that there was like a very very well-regarded, famous, like, you know, horror musical like this from the 70s. And, you know, when they get to the inn and, you know, they really first start going into that whole group number, the, the innkeeper's daughter is, I think, I think the name of it. The I, landlord's daughter? The landlord's daughter. The landlord's daughter. Landlord's daughter. Thank you. Landlord's daughter. I was so <laughs> fucking bought in. Like, before that, it was like, oh, God, this cop is, this cop is so fucking like self-righteous and like this all like i'm i i the thing that's going to entertain me is this guy's indignation and then i we get to the the inn and that all happens and i'm like okay never mind i like this movie already <laughs> and that was the kind of the first that was the first and last time i had seen it up until about a week ago and like i said earlier i read the novel the ritual that this movie was supposed to be based on but wasn't good enough and it's bad. Don't read the ritual. Um, <laughs> and then I read the novelization of The Wicker Man that Anthony Schaffer and Robin Hardy, the director, were writing as they were working on the screenplay for this movie and then didn't publish it until years later when uh, The Wicker Man movie became popular enough to justify it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was good. I mean, it's basically just the movie with you know, more internal life for Sergeant Howie. And if that's a good thing for you, then great. If it's not, then don't read that book. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I did in, in a way appreciate getting to have get more of the, his internal struggle because the movie doesn't have any of that. Like he's not struggling with his faith or anything like that. It's I'm just, sorry. Did you see how much he was sweating when Willow was singing? Her <laughs> oh, song? the sweatiest cop I've ever He met. sweats and he, he like breathes heavily at the wall while <laughs> stroking it. I think we're struggling a little bit. Yeah, I think you might be right on that. But anyway, I, what, I, what I wanted to like really like get across is like I've known about the ending of this movie my entire life. And I'm a little bit bummed about that. Like I, I wish there was some point where I watched this movie not, not knowing that the whole thing was going to be as sinister as it ended up being. But, but having said that, going in, knowing in the ending, it does have that, it gives it that ticking clock feeling, that suspense where it's like, ooh, I'm in on the joke, but Howie isn't, and everyone else in the movie is, and I'm, you know, like the audience, like, instead of, like, Howie being the audience surrogate, everyone is, and that was, like, kind of cool. But, Dan, how about you? So, um, similar, actually, we probably watched Wicker Man for the first time at about the same time. It was maybe a little before you, because I watched it after I saw Midsommar. And I was just like, I really loved that movie. I wanted to know like what the, the roots of this film was and Wicker Man came up and like, yeah, I'd always know. Well, not always uh, for uh, people who maybe have listened to at least one other episode. Thank you for listening to two episodes. It's really nice of you. Um, <laughs> I was really late to the horror game. Um, I think I only really started checking out horror movies in earnest in like 2017 ish. 
so I started learning just like kind of the big names. I didn't really know what they were about. I knew things where it's like this movie called Last House on the Left. There's Friday the 13th. There's Wicker Man. There's Halloween. I didn't know what they were. I just knew they were big names. Um, and then I saw Midsommar. I really liked it. And Ari Aster uh, cited Wicker Man as like, oh, this was like a, a big inspiration for this film. I'm like, okay, I want to go check it out. And I think actually that October... Um, probably fitting with Midsommar coming out. I think Criterion came out with a bunch of full horror and so it was on it. So my roommate at the time had Criterion channels. So I'm like, cool, I can just watch it for free. I didn't know anything about where it was headed, what the eponymous Wicker Man was. I just like, I came in and I saw this cop trying to solve a uh, missing child. And so with like, you know, all the tools that we have with those kind of films, I'm on the cop side. Like, I'm watching someone try to save a child. So at no point there, it took a long time, longer than I care to admit for me to start going against the cop and realizing he's kind of a big old dork. Um, so the, the, and then also all the tonal, like, I don't want to call it inconsistencies, the tonal potpourri almost of it all was really bizarre to me. And so by the time I got to the end, I kind of didn't know what to do with it. Uh, Cause like, I just didn't have like, a frame of reference for what's going on. All I know is I was upset at the end. I was like, damn, this is a lot. Um, and I think the second viewing now, this is the second time I watched it was for this pod, was, was much more instructive. And I like I already enjoyed it a lot the first time I saw it, but I enjoyed it way more now that I knew kind of the game that was being played the whole time and the, the traps that were being set. But yeah, it's kind of interesting. We can get into it further where I, I still, especially the first viewing, I felt some of the residuals of like, I grew up really conservative Christian. So like the, the like stalwart defender of the faith going into the, uh, the, you know, the savage heathen land and defending God against the pagans. Like there, I, I don't care to admit that like there was still some of me rooting for this guy, like being a, like him becoming a martyr. Like I was just so trained to be like, Oh, you know, I kind of got to back this guy a little bit. He stood for his beliefs and stuff like that. Um, on the second time, on the second view, I'm like, fuck you, nerd. Like, get burnt up. Have a good time. That's impressive <laughs> that you had such empathy for a man who opens his mouth and says, can you send the dinghy? <laughs> Why, Christ, send the dinghy. I'm here on police business. Can you send the dinghy? <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, it's a combination of my own upbringing and like I do think audiences are just generally trained to be on the side of a cop in a movie where the cop is the the cent like the protagonist in the the most technical sense of the term where he's just the person who's getting the plot moving and has goals and their yeah, people. Yeah, we were all inundated with propaganda from the mm -hmm. time we were kids. And, and I had that same problem, too. This isn't a Midsommar episode, but it's like, I don't care to admit that, like, I spent a little too long on the side of the boyfriend <laughs> during Midsommar as well. Sure, until sure, sure. It was definitely the happy birthday scene where I'm like, oh, okay, fuck that guy. Never mind. <laughs> but like, Yeah, like, I, I, uh, <laughs> I knew the ending of Midsommar. I've actually only ever watched Midsommar in chunks because Ari Aster frightens me. <laughs> um, and I'm, and I'm like, just, I'm just a highly suggestible, like very permeable human being. It's what makes me a good actor, but it's a really difficult quality to have, um, day to day. And so 
shit that's just incredibly well-made and haunted like Ari Aster's work. Um, I've consumed Midsommar in like bite-sized chunks on TikTok. I'm not ashamed to admit. <laughs> um, but I've known the ending because often with horror movies to get through because my anxiety is so high, mm. I'll spoil it for myself so that I know what to prepare myself for. And that's the only way I can kind of get through a horror movie because, because, and I, and I do that because I think it's worth it to get through horror movies because they have some of the most beautiful imagery in, in any films that are made. And so like with Midsommar, I knew that he was going to wind up in that bear suit and like that first scene where he like, she's just lost her entire fucking family and he's too cowardly to break up with her and being weird and like passive aggressive. I was just like, put him in the bear suit, <laughs> put him in the bear suit, get in the bear suit. Now on, on a, on a more personal note too, when I watched it, I was going through a breakup mm. and it was one of those ones where I'm sure you guys have been through this before where it's like the relationship really ended in like June, but you didn't break up until about October. So there's that like dead, there's that like, Oh, you need to fucking end it period for about four or five months. And I was in the midst of that when I was watching Midsommar. So he got more sympathy out of me than he deserved. Of course. I Fortunately, I never wound up in a bear suit. That is. I'm uh, really, I'm happy that you're here with us today. I, I have a question and I, I want to Google this or maybe I don't, but I'm wondering if the, the bear suit thing is, you know, actually like a, like hold from the new one. If it, <laughs> I was going to say if it's rooted in like real pagan tradition or if Ari Aster was like big ups to the Neil LeBute wicker man. <laughs> oh, I, I think he's got a little bit more of a former, right? And I, I, I was hope so. hoping it's the former, but also <laughs> Ari Aster is a funny man. Yeah. He what, would is the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't I, know he probably that. enjoys that it could be both and he's having fun with that. Yeah. Um, but like I was saying with my first viewing, uh, which was actually kind of a, a hurdle for me, is I didn't realize this is a goddamn musical. I didn't realize I was walking into a horror musical. Several or, diegetic songs. Oh my god! Yeah. And like in so many different tones, like not only just musical, like straight up <laughs> horror. We've got like this weird, like quirky comedy that goes almost into screwball at points. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah Lambert's daughter is a wild moment. <laughs> Oh my god, it's so much fun. Uh yeah, Jared, what do you think about the the general tone of the film? I love how strangely whimsical it is. I love that the music is silly. I love that the music is also beautiful. Sometimes it's both at the same time. Obviously, it's gorgeous to look at. Like you're you're on those like Scottish islands and they're just gorgeous. Obviously, the movie s starts with making sure you know, right, with all those aerial shots. I don't know. I I, I didn't appreciate it as much the first time because I knew the ending, right? I think that they're intentionally trying to have Howie be like this audience surrogate, like he would normally be in a regular movie. Um, and that they're trying to kind of lull you into that whimsy. And so that the ending just smacks you across the face as hard as possible. But again, I, I wasn't in his position not knowing what was going to happen. So I didn't never got lulled into it. The whole, all the whimsy just seems really fucking like scary and sinister to me from the jump, which I think is awesome in its own way. It's it's definitely a peculiar tone that I, I can't really think of a movie off the top of my head that really comes close to, to the same 
maybe the same thing, like where it's lulling you into some sort of false sense of security in one way or another, so that when the tonal shift happens, it really happens. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the thing that all three of us mentioned like right away when we started talking about it. And I think it's it's gotta be one of the the most, if not the most peculiar, unique, and best things about the movie, right? When I saw it for the first time, it was really recent. So post lockdown, post pandemic, post George Floyd when the the like history of cops and like why they exist at least in the united states like that like cops exist as an institution because they they created troops of people to go catch runaway enslaved people like that is the fucking origin of policing in this country and so like pre-pandemic i was a liberal and and post-pandemic i've crept further and further and further left and so going into this with like a very leftist, like anti-cop lens, it's it's a comedy because like everyone on this fucking island is like a cab, a cab, a cab, a cab. They're like, <laughs> who who are you, motherfucker? Like you think the law applies here? That's hysterical. But sure, we'll send a dinghy. And like immediately, like the the close-ups on like the the evil eye and and or I don't know if it's the evil eye because that's that's a different religious practice entirely. But the eyeball on the boat and like the strange little like things that are slightly off that are just immediately apparent. And he doesn't see any of them because he's not trained to like he's only trained to understand what he understands yeah it's not that he doesn't that he can't yeah yeah he just he really can't it really just felt cathartic it's it's so tonally weird but for me it was like a delightful musical comedy until the very end when i was like well we probably shouldn't murder anyone though that's a whole other debate Well, hey, can you share with us your can you quote your favorite letterboxd review of this movie? Oh, uh yeah. There's two of them actually. Wait, one I is, have one too, but I if you say the one that I'm thinking to, it's gonna be wonderful. Uh my favorite one is ACAB BBQ. Yes, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and then my other favorite one is ACAV, All Cops Are Virgins. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it is interesting that, like, you know. And that's how I definitely came into it in the second viewing, because the first time I saw it was either late 2019 or very early 2020 before, you know, the idea of before the idea of ACAB became very popularized. Yeah. Um, this this peculiar tone, this mishmash of tones, like almost kind of matches this like clashing of different, for lack of a better word, ontologies where you have like this uh cop procedural that's going on at the same time or it's like being thrust into this movie about people who are like why why is there a cop movie going on literally uh, in, in our nice little island we're just hanging out like why are you why did you bring a cop movie there we don't want this but that's like actually such a great description of like the brilliance of the tone is yeah. like it's like Howie is like, finally, my episode of SVU. <laughs> and, and and everyone on the island is like is like preparing for Mayday. Yeah, it's like, this is a different movie, brother. I don't know really? what movie you think you're in. It's like the plot of this movie on paper is 30-year-old virgin goes to island to investigate a murder. He's <laughs> so distracted by the fact that people have sex that he doesn't realize he's going to get burned alive. Right. Like, 
(laughs) (laughs) But, and we'll get into it later, he gets, I would argue, he gets exactly what he was looking for when he came out there. He gets to be a martyr. Um, And Christopher Lee even... Did he want that? Christopher Lee even says that much. Like, what what more... I don't know if his point of view is unbiased. I think that I think that Howie wanted to be the good guy and then have fifty to sixty years of uh, appropriate missionary sex with his wife. <laughs> and then his children would grow up to listen to Ben Shapiro, probably. May, I mean, maybe oh, we don't know. Well, no, sorry. Given the time, probably Rush Limbaugh. But then their kids would grow up to listen to Ben Shapiro. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I I don't think I ever ever got into the mindset that I that I even though the movie is constructed you know, where Howie is the classical protagonist, I don't think I was ever 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 on his side. Like I feel his frustration at times with the people on this island, but at the same time, <laughs> I know myself, and I've become the like most insufferable pedant when I don't like a person and he just gets like 70 or 80 of those put in his face and it's just fucking glorious. <laughs> I love it. Every time someone is just sarcastic with him or purposefully just uh, you know speaks nebulously about something that should be really clear <laughs> it just makes me happy every time. <laughs> um, yeah and that does remind me of I was just looking at uh, I was talking to one of my buddies from Germany and he was he was rolling his eyes about like American tourists that he met speaking of being overly pedantic or just different ways of knowing where it's like Americans will come and like talk about Germany and German history like they know and I guess it's like a, a very normal uh, thing at least in uh, Berlin and Cologne where he's from to just like kind of like nod along and like get your little digs in there and your little stupid jokes in there against them that like only the other Germans understand but like yeah. the the Americans like oh yeah, yeah thank you for respecting my opinion I'm the smart opinion haver uh, that I'm bestowing upon all of you you're welcome um, and they, they all get to have those digs which like uh, Wicker Man is full of that I feel like yes it's very <laughs> relatable of, yeah, there there is something about American culture where, at least I felt this in my childhood, that like I was rewarded for knowing, mm-hmm. and and not knowing was not a desirable position. When actually, like anything that anything worthwhile that happens in your life happens when you are approaching something from a position of like curiosity. Yeah. Yeah, standing in the truth that you don't know shit about fuck. Like yeah. that is that is like the the most productive way to go through life. I don't know if Howie had that. No, oh, Howie Howie knew that Jesus Christ was his Lord and Savior. Oh and Jesus that, Christ! Oh God! Oh Jesus Christ! Do these have these children not heard of Jesus Christ? Oh, Fake biology, fake religion. <laughs> oh, anyway, wow. uh, yeah, he really get, does dude. sound like he really does sound like a Ben Shapiro guest, doesn't he? <laughs> biology. <laughs> oh, buddy, Howie. Oh. Facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> Facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> um, oh my God, Howie. So- Jared, you, I, I feel like you wanted to talk about a lot of like, you know, this, I would almost say this is like a foundational film in the world of, of I would actually call it very 
small oh yeah micro genre within uh horror uh folk horror which yeah. also i would say is kind of having a moment again it really right is now. Yeah. Um, so uh, we'll let you wax a yeah. about it about uh, folk horror back then and folk horror today. Like, why is it? Yeah. Well, I don't think I have enough perspective on this to wax poetic. I just wanted to pose a question and just why well, I said I wax idiotic. <laughs> just in fact, it just in case either of you could uh, answer this. So, yeah, this is like a foundational folk horror movie, but there's not a lot of folk horror at all right no. there was a huge blood of it like through or uh you know there maybe not huge but like there there hasn't been very much of it from like the 70s through like i don't know very recently <laughs> so i guess a couple of questions one like why is it so rare and then two why has it still had a lasting impact because pretty recently we've had midsummer obviously is the big one but since then, we, there's this movie called Ennis Men that just came out that's sort of on the Skidamarink, um, Outwaters, um, sort of analog horror, but in like within a folk horror type of movie. Um, there's a movie that Dan has actually mentioned on the pod once before that I forgot about until I just started talking. Uh, is it, is it um, In the Earth? Is that In the, the Earth. Yeah. Well, just general yeah. Ben Wheatley films. Too. Ben Wheatley films, Kill List, In the Earth. Um, and I, that my question is is one why are these movies so rare and two given that they're so rare why are we seeing sort of a renaissance now so and I'll I'll, I'll just chuck this giant grenade in there and see what you guys do with it I think my first answer would be so I got to think about like what do the late sixties early seventies have in common with right now and I would say it's like these are both crisis points. Um, or at least crisis points of a current order of modernity where, um, what, this is a 73 film or 70 on the nose, 73, 73, where, you know, we're right outside of the sixties. We're almost starting to see the, uh, the movement of the sixties, the radicality of the sixties kind of fall apart, or at least the reaction is coming back. So you're, you're kind of seeing this crisis of like, okay, now what, or this, uh, this understanding is like, oh, well, shit, we're like caught in this. The 70s are kind of the the birth of like what you could call neoliberalism, what you could call like this. Uh, Thatcher doesn't come quite yet, but the, the seeds are starting to germinate and there's this sort of malaise that's going on. So with a malaise, you're kind of looking back at other things. Actually, it's kind of interesting. One of some of my favorite novels growing up, the Lord of the Rings novels. Um, they actually weren't that popular in their time. They got popular in the 60s and 70s because of this sort of very pastoral feel to it. And, I mean, damn, if that doesn't feel like the late 20-teens and early 2020s where we're looking at our current, uh, like, we're looking down the barrel of what the future is going to look like, and we're just clawing for alternatives. Where And I felt that way with Midsommar, where it's like, obviously you know, not nice boys and girls in the, the, the Swedish community in Midsommar, but you, I mean, define nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're not nice to people that maybe you shouldn't be nice to. Yeah. What do you mean? What, yeah, what, what's the lens? You know? <laughs> yeah, no, no. What, what lens? It's actually a very important point. Um, and, and it is a sort of um, alternative to modernity and, that has, but it's an alternative that has uh, a really tight knit community that just does not exist right now. And, and you see that with Florence Pugh's character 
in Midsommar that like why this would be appealing to her because she has no community. She's completely isolated. She has yeah. no support system and she's given one. So why wouldn't yeah. she want that? Um, yeah. And we see that also in Wicker Man and um, a lot. I think these two points of the early 70s and our current era are kind of crisis of communities or, I mean, it's always been there, but these are like protracted moments in that. So like artists are gonna be interested in pulling at those threads. Yeah, it is really inter interesting. And it's also like, I know that it's a really common fantasy right now. I know that uh, everyone I talk to- well, like everyone I talk to shares some version of the fantasy of buying a piece of property upstate and like refurbishing a farmhouse with the pooled income of like several friends. You know how many communes I have promised myself to in the last two years? I mean, where are you getting? Who's asking you? Tell me, because I'll I'm fucking like sign me up. But <laughs> but like but the thing is, it, the thing that's funny about like that sort of fantasy is it's like the the white neoliberal kind of like someone who has like newly shed their white neoliberal lens and is like, I want this thing, but I don't really want to live differently. I just want, uh, I want the fantasy of it, but I don't want the reality. Mm -hmm. And I think that like folk horror is like the dark fantasy version of like what all could go wrong. What, what, what okay. could. What I careful what you wish for in a scenario. Like what? I careful what you wish for. Kind yeah. Of. Like, like what, uh, like the, or, or even just like the, the narrativization that's not a word um i feel really like nervous being on this podcast because i like actually am not super cinema literate and i'm just like i don't know i just like watch a movie and feel vibes and then follow them <laughs> you act um, like that's not what we do yeah so so okay but basically like i feel like full core comes from this like everyone has this desire to not everyone, but many people have this desire to live differently, to live deliciously, deliciously. <laughs> yeah. What's that like to live deliciously? Well, it's like the response, like the death of the salesman kind of thing is like, you don't want to do that. So, okay. So what do I do instead? Well, it's like, it's so interesting. Like the, yeah. Like, like everyone's feeling the limits of, of, of the late capitalist chokehold, but there's so much fear of rejecting what's familiar. And I think folk horror explores the fear of rejecting the familiar. Hmm. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you, you go. Oh, cause I mean, and that's the interesting thing about the position of um, the, the Island in the community there where it is celebrated, but it's also shown as dangerous and like sinister at the same time where it's yeah. something that <laughs> is appealing but you might get fucking killed. <laughs> well, sure. But also people lived like this for thousands of years and yeah. it wasn't like wall to wall hedonism and sacrifice. It was actually a lot more just like, you know, going to your neighbors to like, they had, they, they own the pigs. So they have the bacon. And so, you know, going to your neighbors and getting the bacon and you have the corn. So you give them the corn and you get the bacon. It's just a lot of like trading and, and, 
community live like like sharing resources and and celebrating deaths and births together as a community, celebrating holidays as a community, creating times of warmth and merriment in the dead of winter to survive the mental toughness of that. Mm. Like the the actual day-to-day way that people lived their lives like this, that's how people did it for thousands of years. Like we've only been in industrial time for like 200 years. And, and, but we're so, the folk horror is so fascinating because I feel like it's like, everyone's like back then was so bad. It was so bad, but there are so many ways in which you had so much more access to like leisure time and imagination and nature and, and, and the pace of things was slow. Like, and, and I'm obviously, uh, I'm obviously like looking at things with rose tinted glasses and like, listen, I'm a person with a chronic illness. I would be fucking dead in two minutes if we didn't have modern medicine. So like I'm left-handed. I would be set into the ca- uh, fires of hell for my yeah. arm. <laughs> yeah. But I think that the like folk horror is maybe it's just like colonizer nightmares, you know? Yeah. And, and I do think like that's where a lot of the horror comes from is the anxiety of, you know, there's so many people that, you watch this movie and you're like, oh, I could chill on this island. But then you also know in the back of your mind, I couldn't. I have none of the skills required. I have Yeah, no, exactly. I have, yeah, I don't have any of the disposition to join this community. I might get fucking killed because I, through the, the upbringing in some major city center or a suburb or whatever, it's like I, I've lost the ability to connect to the way that these people live. And yeah. that creates like a tension in your mind. Like, yeah, all these fucking like weird uh, paleo conservative types that just want to go out in a cabin in the woods and prep for doomsday or something. It's like, yeah, but those you... people are individualistic. Like the difference between yeah. that mindset of like, I need guns so that I can kill someone who tries to take my shit <laughs> versus like the leftist version of it, which is like, no, we actually need to build communities of people and share resources. And if someone comes to, to our doorstep, we figure out what they need and how to incorporate them and how to like add their skills to the community, basically, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But like, I hear you on that. I feel like six years ago, I was like, I couldn't actually hack it. And now I'm like, I am ready to eat fruit with my titties out. <laughs> well, why do you think, um, you know, I'm joining that that is not not a part of the peel of trying to join fires like i'm getting a lot of manual skills yeah like oh it feels good to like be able to survive out in the wilderness and like tie knots and things (laughs) (laughs) it feels like i don't know it just feels better that like oh should should hit hit the fan like i kind of know what i'm doing and i can help people where when someone invites me to a commune when i was a tech salesman i'm not very useful but if i'm a (laughs) maybe uh, one one of the best like recent movies that touches on exactly this and makes it like really hilarious but dark and and disturbing as well. And I don't want to spoil it on this one, but uh, if you haven't listened to our episode on Bo is Afraid, ah, <laughs> we talk yeah. about this for probably like thirty minutes <laughs> episode. But uh, <laughs> the the Sparknotes version is Bo is been living basically under the gun of a like a domineering mother who is like the Jeff Bezos of this world. Yeah. <laughs> and she uh she she has all the power in the world, but he lives in like this little apartment in like the worst part of town and he subsists on nothing but uh uh like microwave dinners that are manufactured by his mom's company. And uh he lives in just like this uh anxious 
uh, late stage capitalist hellscape. And at some point in the movie, he's like welcomed into this just like off the grid, sustainable uh, uh, community of forest dwelling theater artists. <laughs> and uh, what becomes of that is what I don't want to spoil, but like Ari Aster has a really strong point of view on exactly this topic and it's in yeah. I was afraid and it's kind of hilarious and shocking. Yeah, it's excellent. If anything, um, you could probably check it out on like those particular bits are probably on YouTube or somewhere that you could check out just that like condensed version if you don't want to be stressed out for three straight hours. Yeah, I'm good. I saw Uncut Gems and that was enough of that. for. Oh, me. my God. Ter oh, <laughs> that took a year off my life. Um, OK, I want to talk about something happier for a minute. I just <laughs> We just like generally gush about. I was literally Lee. just talking about eating fruit with my titties out. I don't know what's happier than that. <laughs> that is true. Christopher Lee being there as well. It's true. In uh, his beautiful dress. Yeah, like 45 year old Christopher Lee, or no, like 55 year old Christopher Lee in his dress. Uh, and then also eating fruit with, with his titties out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that'd be He's also just a, a side note. I think we talked about this earlier that he's one of those actors I never envisioned being young. So the first time I ever see him in an older movie where he is young, I'm like, oh, he wasn't always Saruman, was he? Yeah, he was a straight up hottie. Yeah, he he uh, as um, not that Saruman isn't a hottie. Yeah, who wouldn't? I mean, different in, in his own way, different flavors. Um, <laughs> he's, he's, he he is such a world treasure. Um, just in like his career is, I would say most like almost unparalleled. Like there's there's like. You know, there's probably like five different generations of folks who all hold Christopher Lee in like some level of, of reverence, right? Mm. And like it's it's just like looking at his filmography is just like so incredible. Um, but even outside of his filmography, is like one of the most interesting people in the last you know hundred years, I would say. In that, like, I mean, okay, just the filmography itself, like going from the Hammer Horror stuff to this more sort of prestigious horror and then late like like mid late career where he's saruman and he's the villain in star wars but then like the last decade of his life he it was just like heartwarming sweet role after heartwarming sweet role we like talked about him in hugo how he's like one of the warm centers of that movie the the more recent uh willy wonker Char charlie and the chocolate factory and christopher lee is also like this like as like the sweetest like the sweetest part in that movie and it's just amazing the career he had but on top of all of that he was also like a nazi hunter like he what? was he was he, he was, was in a in death the, metal band too yeah he was in a death metal band on top of doing other albums of like broadway standards and stuff like that he was yeah he was uh he was in special forces in world war ii okay. he was in uh uh, part of the English army this is called the, the the League of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Oh fuck. Where yeah. They would go behind the scenes to just or like behind enemy lines to just like assassinate Nazi officers. And his second cousin and like a really close friend of his growing up is uh Sir Ian Fleming. Oh wow. Who um picked his brain endlessly on his exploits as a spy while he was first writing Casino Royale. Later on, like in fact, right after this movie, that Christopher Lee's next movie after Wicker Man was The Man with the Golden Gun, where he played uh, Francesco Scaramanga, mm. you know, Bond villain. So, like, not only was Christopher Lee a Bond villain, Christopher Lee was 
literally James Bond <laughs> in real life. <laughs> and like, I don't, I don't see how it gets more interesting than that. Like as far as like an actor's life and time. My, my favorite little like a- anecdote about him where, like I said, I, I grew up on Lord of the Rings. I watch all the behind the scenes stuff um, where oh, there's yeah. a scene where Saruman dies um, and he gets stabbed in the back. And uh, originally, he was uh, Peter Jackson wanted to make up a certain noise, like, <gasps> oh! and yeah. Saruman's like, listen, buddy, I've seen people stabbed in the back. They don't make that noise. Yeah. And so <laughs> the noise that Saruman makes when he gets stabbed is like what Christopher Lee told Peter Jackson, like, that's what it sounds like when a motherfucker gets stabbed in the back. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> I know, I'm Peter Jackson. <laughs> I remember Peter Jackson's talking head about that. And, and now he was just like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> like, take it easy, buddy. We're just making a movie. Uh, that's what I, that's the great thing about Christopher Lee. He's just like, no, we're not just making a movie. We are like with Lord of the Rings. It was his favorite series of books. And so you'd read it every he, year. Yeah. He, he, he treated it with the, the reverence of like an acolyte. And, mm-hmm. and I think that great filmmaking is often when everyone is that invested and everyone can really step into the constructed world and, and understand that they like, it requires the dedication and the focus of every single person involved. Of course, that's way easier said than done, but yeah. When it happens, it's magic. And you know what's magical? It's Christopher Lee in a beautiful 70s hippie dress God. and white makeup on. Yes. Wonderful. Wonderful. And his smoking time. I mean, I just love that this movie, this is Christopher Lee's, the movie that he's proudest of in his whole filmography. It's the is movie it? that he says, is, yeah, it's, wow. it's, it's, it's the, he, he designated it the best movie he's ever made. <laughs> That's what really saying something. Yeah, too. truly. Jeez. Yeah. He was also like back to the Lord of the Rings. I'm sorry, but he was also as far as um like any any of the talking heads and all the, you know, extended edition DVD extras knew. He, uh, Christopher Lee was the only person involved in the production to have met Tolkien. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wild. And he for a long time envisioned himself playing Gandalf yep. and like it was a strange mm-hmm. role. And I'm always, uh, I've always, I've always been so sad that even though Ian McKellen is, is so absolutely perfect and Christopher Lee would not have been as perfect as Gandalf. Oh. It still makes me a little sad that the person who was arguably the most invested and, you know, like really wanted it the most, uh, you know, it's sad he didn't get to play Gandalf. But I wonder if that elevated Ian McKellen's role working with Christopher Lee. Yeah. I was about, I no I was just about to say that that dynamic big Saruman energy. <laughs> gotta say, gotta say. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like I'm Saruman the White. Why does everyone like this gray wizard more than me? It's confusing to me. I don't understand. Very Amadeus. Very yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> the, the the roles are reversed in that because Ian McKellen played Salieri at the West End and on Broadway. But oh, in this version, awesome. Ian McKellen is the young buck who has the voice of God in him. I wonder if Dean, when um when Christopher Lee is like hearkening or uh, towards the end when he's like declaring to the sun goddess, I'm like, that's fucking Saruman. It's Saruman yeah. declaring to the heaven. I don't declare to the goddess of the fields. Imagine having that sun. voice. 
My favorite thing is when he's like discussing a piece of Tolkien lore and he starts talking about the ring and just immediately like slips into flawless whatever it is, like Telmar or like Dark Elvish, whatever it is. And he's just like, and it's like perfect. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> yes. One oh. ring to rule them all. But, oh, my favorite Saruman line is, you will taste man flesh. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working on that impression for like the last 22 years. <laughs> Saruman, queer icon. Oh, absolutely. Everyone in the Lord of the Rings is gay. <laughs> <laughs> well, who had prettier hair than Saruman? Look at, like, he ironed that shit. Legolas. Yeah. Oh, that's true, that's true. Actually, a lot of people have prettier hair than him, and that's really saying something. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, I need to talk about my favorite Lord's Supper moment of this movie, and for some reason, I didn't catch it the first time I watched it, but he's got a great little boo scare where... Sergeant Howie is like looking at like the young girls jumping over the fire naked, and then all of a sudden, like Summer Elf appears from behind his giant chair, and he's just like, "What does he say?" He's like, "Does it energize you?" It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, "Does it energize you to see the young people?" Just like, just like, <laughs> it's like out of nowhere, he's just fucking there. He's like, it. "You got a job there, bud." Hmm? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You like what no, you see? Not. Energize me to naked. <laughs> Overcompetition. No. <laughs> uh, and they're yeah, they're, they're they're dancing around the phallic symbol. Phallic symbol. Take the, baby, take the flame inside you. Let the baby grow. <laughs> no. I, I I am obsessed with the whole soundtrack. What do you think? What do you think the best song in the soundtrack is? Kid? I mean, I love Willow's song. Mm. It's uh, gently Johnny is really great, but we're not. I love the landlord's daughter. We're just not going to talk about that one. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, we could talk about the landlord's daughter. Uh, like, <laughs> oh my God, what's between her left toe oh, and the right toe? My favorite. My, my favorite thing about that. Is like so. I watch it, and I, I remember like that was one moment where I was watching it the first time, and I was like, "Willow deserves better than this." <laughs> but then I'm, but but then I'm like, I'm watching it with this lens of like, mm, uh, basically like I I grew up Catholic, so I I have a very like. Ooh, sorry to hear that. Thank thank you thank you so much. <laughs> um, it's been a long journey for me, um, but like like that. I come at it like from from a slightly even now repressed prudish lens, and I and I have this sort of reactive like, don't talk about her like that. But she's just sort of being like, <laughs> you know, like she because in in their little world, like a woman is not lesser than for like fucking a bunch. Like that's actually 
everyone fucks a bunch. That's the whole thing. And like to sing a body song about a a woman is like a celebration of her sexual prowess, Mm -hmm. which in that society is celebrated. Yeah. And like in in the director's cut, there's the scene where Christopher Lee like brings in, like like gently Johnny is is the scene is originally scoring the scene where she's uh, having sex with the young man that Christopher Lee basically brings to her window. And it's like, ah, Willow, I've brought you the hottest man in Summer's Isle. And she's like, sure, I guess. I tried him <laughs> out for you. <laughs> and, and yeah, so like the landlord's daughter, I remember being annoyed by it the first time I watched it. And then I watched it again and she's just sort of like, She's like bopping in the corner. <laughs> I'm like, I should probably look to Willow and see how she feels about yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, how different would it be if it like if it was gender flipped and it's like, ah, you know, uh sweet Jared, he fucks all the maidens in, in everywhere. Oh, he gets all the, the ass he wants. Everyone would love it. Yeah. yeah. Especially me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. it is like in the in yeah, what to your point, like the, the culture that is being depicted in, in this film, it's like it would be the same way where it's like, look at the sexual prowess of this woman. She's like yeah. incredible and people desire her because of it. Like the greatest honor is to have sex with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or to be you know, chosen and, by her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Willow's song is beautiful and um Britt Eklund is beautiful and like obviously like obviously all of that, right? But like that has to rank amongst the silliest seductions in cinema. <laughs> like, I beg so okay, fair. please tell me why I'm wrong. I mean, it is truly insane. And, and, <laughs> and one of the, one of, so after my friend Derek and I saw the movie together, um, we said goodbye to each other by doing the door dance to each other, like <laughs> on the street. Like we were like, get home safe. like just like gyrating back and forth outside the christopher street one stop but (laughs) i i don't know i just think that like there is a there is a part of me that's like it's silly for two seconds and then i'm just fucking into it yeah no i I like she's she's naked as the day is long like walking around her room stroking the walls stroking the furniture like finding the place she wants to gyrate, going for it for a little bit. I'm like, man, it's a Tuesday night. What's up? <laughs> yeah, and it does feel like that for a t- for her. It's a Tuesday night. Yeah, she just does her nightly cal- like naked calisthenics. Would you would you say that she was going to the wall, kind of look doing a stud finder? Is that what she? Oh, oh wow! No. Well, she was. She did not find one. Oh, she sure fucking didn't. Uh, I mean, it makes sense that the whole seduction was for her and not for him. Mm-hmm. They don't want it to work. Like she doesn't want, like yeah, she doesn't want it yeah. to work. Yeah. I don't know if that's true though. They didn't want to burn that cop. Well, no, that's, obviously. That's a really I'm... interesting question. Yeah, what if he would have? not followed every one of their traps and would have been like, yeah, I'll fuck this hot, uh, hot lady. And then like, Oh, well, all right. Uh, see you later. The existence of that seduction scene is really interesting considering the fact that they need him to be a virgin in order to be the sacrifice. But I wonder if there's like sort of, they need him to be like the archetypal virgin who resists yeah. all temptation, who like passes through the desert and does not succumb, <laughs> you know, like passes through the desert and is offered water and turns it down because he knows his holy obligation. 
part of me wonders if it's that. And like, if he did succumb to the test, then he, he would never have been the right person. Yeah. And, and kind of feeds into the, like the Midsommar and the Ari Aster of it all, where it, he loves his himself, some Greek tragedies where, mm. um, you know, how he was in retrospect doomed from the very first scene. Yeah. Now, of course, cause we see it all play out in exactly Ooh, that way. Very Scottish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very. Uh, I was thinking about waxing idiotic about Calvinism on that one, but I just don't know enough about it. And like, you know, uh, predestination and all that stuff. But like, yeah, everything seemed like it was already on a track before the film even started. That's very folkloric. Like this, the, and like you said, Greek, the structure of like stories exist to teach us certain lessons. And so every character in a story occupies a well-trod like type mm. path. Um, they explicitly talk about archetypes towards the end when they're talking about the fool they're talking mm -hmm. about i forget what the name of the guy with the horse i love it he's like clank 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 like that guy or, cool. hmm? my personal favorite the salmon of knowledge ah the salmon of knowledge the salmon of knowledge <laughs> the man who has the salmon of knowledge mask is my favorite <laughs> oh, my, my favorite my favorite bit of the like the 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 paganism just absolutely like disrupting how he's like entire being is when he he reads he's reading all of the uh all the gravestone in the world of um says it's like may I be protected by the ejaculation of serpents. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I just like the two of you, like you know, I, I I love the two of you so much. If I die Will you please make sure that I'm protected by the ejaculation of Listen, serpents? I'm gonna jerk off so many snakes for you. <laughs> oh, oh, how many? How many would it take to really um, protect me? At least a dozen. Um, okay, well, thank you. Thank you, you. powerful. I that. I'm lot. gonna put that in my in my living will. So you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson demanded that Johnny Depp fire him out of a cannon in the desert i'm going to demand that you protect me with the ejaculation of serpents i'm just gonna to have to look up some videos about how to jerk off a snake how to, how to milk a serpent <laughs> no i'm not going to look up how to milk a serpent i want how to jerk off a snake got it got it got it okay great <laughs> it's important to be specific on the internet right well, yeah your, your wording does change your results <laughs> so this this came out in 73 we're in the uh you know the the very height of the cold war we're in the height of i mean the u.s is pretty much the leader in like the idea of like western liberal democracies but you know britain is certainly the uh slightly though i i wouldn't call them the younger brother because they're older but like the aging cousin i don't know what i would call them um but we're seeing the cop as this very much force of a certain way of being, the certain way of living, and he's sort he's representing at least the the English uh, way of being onto this island, and he's kind of like ramrodding his way through everyone, saying and and like inserting his force against everyone, and almost in a way that reminds me of you know cops today. Um, <laughs> but it, what it's, about it? <laughs> but it's it's not only like the, the force of like you will comply but it's not only you will comply but you will comply and you will believe in our compliance and you will you will take our ideology to be true like it, it's not enough to just like go along with it 
but he needs everyone to believe what he believes. And that's an extension of the state power that he represents. And that's even brought up towards the end where it's like, he has the power of the King. Like that's why he sacrificed because he represents that. And what do we make of, you know, England, which is very much a neoliberal state at this point, Mm -hmm. going into an Island that's sort of on the fringes of this and people are living in an alternative way. And this, this force of authority coming in and uh, kind of admonishing everyone for living alternatively, not in a way that's antagonistic per se. I think it's pretty antagonistic. Yeah, definitely. I I would actually argue it's worse than antagonistic. And that's why I think it upsets him. It's indifferent. It does not care. Oh, you're saying that the people. Yeah, the people. And that's why I think it's. Oh yeah, they're indifferent. Yeah, that's what's upsetting to uh, Howie is that they just don't give a shit about his authority. Like they're not pushing back against him. They're just like, oh, well. Yeah, that's what you think. We're just going to go do our thing over here. And that's what's so infuriating about him. Um, There are to him. So what do you think of that? And especially when it comes to him coming to Christopher Lee's character, who is sort of the patriarch of this colony, and you have this sort of clashing of ideologies in a way. I don't know if I want to call them both authoritarian you can definitely call the cop authoritarian i'm careful not to call christopher lee an authoritarian it's kind of in a different way but uh you guys well it is interesting that he's still lord of the manor and he occupies that place like he's the only one who lives in that manor house his he takes the title lord like he's conspicuously english yeah it's like it's interesting that the vestiges of of like colonization are still on this pagan colony um, it makes it really weird. But the thing you were talking about actually made me think of the fact that Mormons are overrepresented in government organizations like the FBI and CIA because they are indoctrinated. They are raised to believe that there is an ultimate authority and that the U.S. government is the earthly embodiment of that authority mm-hmm. and that the U.S. law is God's law. And so they become amazing FBI and CIA agents because they don't question orders handed down from above. When And so in that way, like Howie kind of reminds me of that. He's just someone who's never questioned the or the hierarchy of the system into which he was born mm-hmm. because it offers him enough of a privileged position to to like get to, to like live a fulfilling life and what he's confronted with on the island is the fact that like no matter what society you live in the rules are made up mm-hmm. someone yeah. made- well and and yeah and summer isle's grandfather made them up and like stoked the paganism on the island as like a commercial mechanism. Mm-hmm. Summer Isle himself is like shockingly open about that, admitting that his grandfather basically brought paganism on like to this island to like create a little good colony of worker bees to make sure his apples grow and he can sell them consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's like pretty comfortable with uh, an anthropological approach to religion where he, he's like, yeah, my ancestors like saw a problem saw a way to fix it and saw a way to help this community thrive. It doesn't make it any less real or less believable or less true in the hearts of everyone around, but it does make everything function. 
And that would make Howie kind of reflect on like, hmm, well, how do the ways that I see the world help like make things function? And you just seem about all. Yeah, he just he just refuses. Yeah, yeah. like his brain just breaks and he can't do it. Yeah, basically. Yeah, he's like he's confronted with having to look into his own ideology and just like refuses to believe that it even exists whatsoever. You know, it's it's the whole like. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Like the way we behave right now is human nature. So, like, we can't do anything about it. So, we just have to keep uh, eliminating the homeless, you know? Um, so, it's like that kind of strict adhere. It's the, um, the really boring thing. And I'm sure you've run into people like this in your work all the time where it's like, oh, I'm apolitical. I don't have any ideology. It's like, that is an ideology. Like, yeah, you're so bought in that you don't even question it yeah or that yeah that it it doesn't you don't feel the effects of of marginalization or oppression or whatever like it doesn't interrupt your life so you have the privilege of not being political right but there is something um like i actually think that howie is in denial for the whole movie until he's in the wicker man and the, the flames are creeping up the base of the thing. Like, I think his denial lasts until he is confronted with his death. Wait, you think, you think he does abscond at the end? I thought he went all the way through. I thought he died a martyr's death. That's interesting. I don't know. I don't, it's hard to say because we don't stay with his face. We don't stay with his perspective as he burns alive. I don't know the thoughts he's thinking as, as he like faces his mortality. He appeals to his God. He prays, but yeah, I, I think that the, the ambiguity is deliberate and really, really interesting. Hmm. I, I do think that there is a, uh, there would there would have been a it would have been easy to focus just on his suffering though, and it definitely doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, for what it's worth, in the novel, I, I was privy to his thoughts reading the novel that was written by Anthony Schaffer, and it is more of like Dan's version, where it's like he dies a martyr's death. Like it doesn't the, the like we don't we don't really hear his suffering in his head in the novel either it is like you know he's a good christian martyr through and through but yeah we're here to talk about the movie and it is ambiguous in the movie but i do think it's telling that they didn't kind of take that easy route of just really focusing on his physical torment Mm -hmm. and i think that's the strength of the film is like they they never land on anything they keep the ambiguity going throughout the entire film all the way up until the very end Um, and that's like the best especially horror films uh create sort of a rorschach test in ways uh where my first viewing on this like i said i was like very much trained to uh be on the side of cops to be on the side of the christian martyr and stuff like that even after i like overtly or intellectually have rejected it like i that that shit still gets it's in your skin it's in your bone sure you're watching that yeah so when you're seeing him like still recite the Lord's prayer, still keeping the faith, like I couldn't help but see that as heroic as someone who grew up in that same faith. So mm-hmm. it felt less ambiguous to me. But now on the second watch, I realized I was reading it that way. So it created that more, 
it, which great art does, it created a reflection or a self-reflection yeah. of myself. It was like, oh, why am I reading it that way when it yeah. doesn't have to be read that way? Yeah. Dan, well, Dan, can you tell us more? Because I know like you literally have experience like like very like, specific experiences that you remember kind of learning about those sort of like, you know, modern day martyrs. So where, where does that come from as far as just your upbringing? Let me tell you about two nerds uh, at two very different points in my life and my two very different opinions of them. Uh, one is a man named Jim Elliott, uh, where I sent you guys a, a trailer for a film about him. Basically, um, this guy died in the 50s in Ecuador because he uh, flew his ass down there to try to uh, show the, the love of Jesus to the heathens. <laughs> um, and he got his ass killed. He actually uh, went to Wheaton College, which is like the town over from me. It's one of, or town over from me when I grew up. So that's why he's like kind of a local celebrity uh, in the Christian circles that I was unfortunately plopped in. Um, but <clears throat> we watched the film about his life in church. I remember, I literally remember crying at him dying in the whole film and like everything about, about a literal martyr. Like he was a modern day martyr to me about someone like, you know, preaching the faith so intensely that he got killed for it. And and that was kind of the message is like, if you are a true Christian, you should be willing to do this. And anything less than that is sort of a uh, cowardice or a weakness in your faith. And I, I carried that for a long time in my life. Now, cut to uh, John Allen Chow, who in 2018 went to an island uh, off the coast of India to try to evangelize the faith and got his ass killed. And I remember reading that stuff in 2018. I'm like, LOL, nerd. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, don't do that shit. And he also went to, um, not he didn't go to Wheaton College, but he went to Oral Roberts University, which is also a, a college in a yeah. very, very similar vein to something like Wheaton College. And it's just like a very interesting uh, lens between like how I've just changed as a person through my life and where the first guy was a martyr to me, this next guy is a colonizer dipshit. That's yeah. just like sticking his nose where he doesn't belong and uh, showing up where he's not invited. It's very clear. And he keeps forcing himself in there kind of like a certain cop at certain places, telling <laughs> other people how to live their lives, how to be and gets killed for it. And now both of them i feel no sympathy for i yeah. i see them the same way as you see like colonizers in africa in south america that were coming uh was it uh god germs and steel like that whole uh mm -hmm. that whole theory of colonization and i just see it as a neo-colonial iteration of the same old story of just a, a very small minority of people on this planet having the wealth and the power and the privilege to tell the whole rest of the goddamn planet how to live. Yeah. And a couple of people got fucking killed for it. And it's really hard for me to feel bad about that kind of chauvinism having consequences. Just like our good buddy who got burnt in a big old uh, statue 
that looks like a man. Now I do feel bad for the goats and the chickens. So they I do also feel bad for the goats and the chickens. <laughs> yeah, what did they That's the most upsetting part of the end for me. Why do they need to do that if they've got this this perfect virginal power of the king, you know, big old big old dummy in there? Why do they need to do that? I to the think it adds, at least for the film, the ambiguity where it's like you can't fully side with exactly, with yeah. Yeah. Then then put Rowan in there. <laughs> don't, don't fucking do that to the goats. Bruh. But Rowan's also innocent. Yeah. But to clearly make it a cut, cut and dry, black and white, you know, one side's good, one side's bad. That's what a certain remake did. And it was terrible. Uh, the thing you were saying though about um, I think that's it's so funny describing like the shift in your viewpoint around those martyrs. Like that was what's so cathartic on the first watch for me was how we going in with that expectation of like people are going to uh, want to are going to have an interest in saving this child. They're going to have an interest in in the framework. They're going to have the framework that I have and then going in and everyone just being like, what's up, weirdo? Why are you asking all these questions? This is how we do things here. Do you have a problem with it? It's just so refreshing. <laughs> yeah. And and that's what's funny is like, I think I, I made that joke in, in a group chat when we were preparing for this is like, I could totally see someone entirely missing the point of this movie and thinking that he's a hero from this whole experience. Oh, yeah. It yeah. hits all the beats of a Christian martyr film. Yeah. A man that sticks to his faith, never wavers and dies for it and, and dies in a way that's very religious and very uh pious <laughs> so, but i think that's part of its greatness is that yeah. it, it it has enough ambiguity that you can root for him you can root for the pagans you, like and it is it it is a mirror like it's it's a it reflects back at you your strongly held beliefs i'm and then, really and then glad it, i didn't see this when i was like 14 yeah. <laughs> oh you, you know somewhere out there there's like a like a ratty vhs in some like sunday school room where like <laughs> all the all the titties have been removed from this movie <laughs> and they show this as like an example of a good christian martyr who's sticking up for, <laughs> sticking up for the lord jesus christ christ <laughs> and that line delivery he really does deliver it with the conviction of someone who is actually Asking for an intercession yeah. from God. Summer Isles like very confidently tells him that like his Christian God is dead. <laughs> and the camera pushes real hard right up on Howie's face. And I'm just like, and like all of that indignation just bubbles up all at once. And the camera just like helps him out. And uh, my thought was like, man, I I as much as like we do not like howie the character i do think that like edward woodward's performance is fucking remarkable he's incredible oh so yeah good. but what a gift that like really really intense push-up on his face when he's told god is dead just like augmenting his performance it's yeah. just delicious and that does uh cause me to think about yeah like even the idea of sacrifice and the idea of like human sacrifice and and our like really it's actually kind of fun here uh, in San Diego, there's uh, an anthropology museum, and they have a whole um, or a, uh, exhibit on human sacrifice, on cannibalism, on all that stuff, and how we only understand that from a very Western lens, mm -hmm. where it's like Europeans have been eating each other and murdering each other and sacrificing each other to random gods 
for goddamn centuries. And we think we're above people about mm-hmm. it. And <clears throat> it's this idea of the, you know, the the classic uh, biblical story, the binding of Isaac, where, you know, mm-hmm. Abraham, uh, it's, you know, Kierkegaard talks about it at length, where it's like this idea of following a deity, even though you don't fully understand them, all the way up to the bitter end of even murdering your own child, where the, the idea is like Abraham was going to kill his kid, full conviction. He had no problems with it, but he didn't because God at the last second was like, LOL, it was a prank. It was a social experiment. Haha. <laughs> really <laughs> weird how we never check in with Isaac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He gets <laughs> no feedback on that. Where he's but- like, after that, it's just like the full Oppenheimer stare for like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> he's like my dad was just gonna straight up murder me but like it was it was it was because he knew that like god was playing a little prank lol he's yeah playing. and then isaac started the first emo band yeah he's fine <laughs> <laughs> when i was a young boy my father my dad tried to kill me has your dad ever me. done that <laughs> <laughs> but it's this chauvinism that like he he was like admonishing all the oh you guys practice ritual human sacrifice which first off it was never shown until the very end. Like all the human sacrifice was like ritualistic where they do the, the sword thing and they like pretend to cut the head off, which is kind of what Christians do now with like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the transubstantiations. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. With the, the, the wine and the bread, it's, yeah. it's not entirely different where Christians still believe in human sacrifice. We've just uh, sublimated it out to something yeah. else, just like the people of Summer Isle were doing uh, but because he just fell into every single trap or he um, basically created himself into a martyr, they kind of gave him what he wanted out of that. So it's yeah. like, you want to, you want to prove your faith. Here you go. Yeah. We, yeah. We're giving it to you. And, and it, it, it's this very interesting, like anthropological chauvinism that exists within Howie that uh, exists within Western Christianity in general. It's like, well, you know, oh, we we went to Mexico and all the Incans were were sacrificing people and we stopped that because they're fucking savages. It's like, oh, that's funny. That was during the Inquisition. Like, yeah, re- really interesting that you guys are going to take the moral high ground here. Yeah, it's also like the evidence of, of human sacrifice in Celtic religion mostly exists in Roman accounts of the Celts. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so it's specious because Roman accounts of the Celts were trying to turn public opinion against Celtic religion to justify uh, dominating them and, and put well, like bringing them under the arm of empire. So it's like, we don't even know that it, it, I think historians Celts did occasionally practice human sacrifice, but it was like very rare so there's also, there's this great game. I was telling Jared about it earlier this week, this PC game called Pentiment, hmm. which is Pentiment. a beautiful game about the attempts of a colonizing belief system to bury sort of like the, the, any violent history so, like, in this game, it's about the efforts of an abbey in Bavaria to obscure the pagan history of the land on which the abbey and the town attached to the abbey stands. Because I'm actually someone personally where I find the end of the movie, like, the party really ends hard for me because 
I, for me, the, like, for me, the movie was about the dangers of absolute belief in anything. Mm, okay. Like dogma in general. Yeah. Like the danger of, of dogma of any kind, because is your dogma good if you are killing someone? Maybe not. Mm. Like, and, and it, like, it gets very real from the moment that Christopher Lee is like, it is time to keep your appointment with the Wicca man. Like that line, mm. I, like my stomach dropped. I was like, oh shit, what's really happening? That's interesting where, where you bring up, uh, like, the Austrian, like, trying to paper over uh, pagan beliefs and stuff like that. It's a film that me and Jared saw at SIF, uh, Iratu, is mm. kind of similar to that where mm-hmm. we we think of, w- like, Western society and Christendom of, as, like, this kind of monocultural place where, you know, Europe was this weird hodgepodge of all sorts of different indigenous beliefs and it just got fucking bulldozed by the power of the Catholic church and the power of the Roman empire. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it was so long ago that to us, it seems so natural. And now Europe seems so monocultural where, you know, there's pockets of that, that exist all over. Like even modern day Barcelona is still kind of a haven for some forms of pre-Christian beliefs or what is it? Um, uh, Jared, help me out. Well, where is Iratu set? It's northern Spain. I can't. Yeah, it's it's anywhere. it's like the Basque region. The Basque region. That's it. Yeah, Basque yeah. country. Where it's like, it isn't this, you know, single culture that everyone has ascribed to. And you know, Summer Isle could be an example of this. Or even uh, there are part like my family that still lives in Ireland. They live in a really rural, remote part of Western Ireland, and it has very little to do with. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we understand of like Irish Catholic culture. It's it's a different place where when I go there, all the signs are in Gaelic. I can't fucking understand a thing that's going on when it comes to the street signs. Yeah. Um, Can you understand when the people are speaking? Yeah. They all speak English. Like it's not, it's not uh, too tough on that end, but all the, uh, all the, the cultural signs and all the cultural, actually uh, summer Isle reminds me a lot of the town that my family lives in. Uh, with at least the architecture and everything, it has that really quaint, like old world feel, which is really nice. Uh, as someone living in the new world, I suppose. Well, Dan, can you tell can you tell us what you thought about the 2006 remake of oh. The Waker Man, written and directed by one Neil LeBute? So basically, so because I have people that wish ill upon me, they made me watch this. Um, <laughs> I was definitely the person that like forced forced it upon both of you. I know I really didn't want to watch it. I made. Like, I really don't want to watch anything Neil Butte does. <laughs> I made my sweet sweet mother spend three dollars on Amazon Prime, so I <laughs> Wicker Man two thousand six starring Nicolas Cage. Okay. Um, Neil Butte, go on to preface this. He's best known for a play where. A guy, like a perfectly just innocent average guy is uh, manipulated by a cunning woman into getting a <laughs> fucking woman, man, getting plastic surgery on on himself uh, and ends up being like her art project. That's what Neil B. thinks of women. His other like best known play is ultimately about how it's OK to like fat shame women. Yeah. And uh, then The Wicker Man, not the bees is probably going to be his legacy. The, the God, scene that wasn't even in the actual movie. I know. I know. His movie is so bad that the the best known part is something that he chose to cut out of it. <laughs> I, I hate this movie. It's one of those movies where it's not only bad, 
it's bad for people. Like it's bad that it exists. Yeah, yeah agree. Thing. It basically takes. So let's start with the base of Wicker Man, the the original film. And let's say he looked at it and he's like, hmm, okay, that was an interesting film. What if I took all ambiguity out and <laughs> and then I ramped up the copaganda to about a hundred percent? And for some reason, I'm just gonna make sure that everyone comes out of this thinking uh, women are bitches and that they shouldn't be in uh, positions of authority because they'll just make men uh, their little servant boys. Um, and also, I'm just I really I'm really interested in watching men beat the shit out of women like multiple times and yeah, unnecessary. So weird. Yeah. So weird, Neil. Neil, go to therapy, honey. Well, actually, Neil, go into a ditch and then I'll fill it up. Truly, but like maybe in that ditch, there's a therapist and you talk about why it's so hard to talk to women uh -huh. and why women's so mean to you. So and women just don't understand what O'Neill. Basically, if Ted Mosby redid uh, Wicker Man, that would be this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just I I hate Neil Abute with the fire of a thousand suns. Um, I had a terrible acting teacher in college who assigned me a scene from Autobahn. I was like 19 years old, and he assigned me the 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 role of a woman, a, a late like a woman in her 30s, uh, in a failing marriage, trapped in a car with her husband. And she, the marriage is failing because she cheated because she's a big bitch, you know? Well, most women are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, obviously, That's obviously. And, and this acting thing. teacher was like, like, just think about all the guys you fucked, you know? Like, I'm, I, maybe I was 18. I don't know. But Jeez. I was like, I was like, I'd had sex with like one person in my life at that point. And I was like, what's your deal? What's going on, buddy? Why are you assigning so much Neil Labute to 19-year-olds? Why are you, like, whispering in my ear about my ah. sexual history? Okay. Yeah, so that's kind of some of the associations I have with Neil Labute. Maybe none of that will make the podcast. I just... Ugh, Neil Labute is, like, the laziest writer and human to exist. So, I... When you... I remember you were talking about how he's a bad person, so I looked him up. And I looked at one picture. I'm like, oh yeah, fuck that guy. Like just from his picture, I'm like, oh, this guy looks like a like real a greasy. Yeah, I, I, he looks like he needs to take a shower at all times. I mean, there's a part of me that pities like the Neil Abutes of this world because it they just keep winding up in the same position with the same artistic question, and it's a boring artistic question because Very. everyone else knows the answer. And and they just can't get it together that their own prejudices or hatreds might be standing in the way of their growth. And so part of me feels bad for Neil because I imagine he's a deeply lonely human being. But then I watched The Wicker Man and that feeling evaporated. <laughs> I was about to say, you have more empathy than me. Uh, my opinions on what I would like to do to Neil uh, should not wind up on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie didn't just like more or less derail his own career it set nick cage's back by like 10 years yeah he doesn't pop it, back up till mandy it, yeah well i mean a whole bunch of just like really 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 bad like 
direct to video, you know, just paychecks that he got for sure. But like he was he was a serious actor before and after that decade after the national treasure yeah i mean like lily sobieski is the other one like i watched this movie and i was like holy shit before this movie she was in eyes wide shut working with fucking kubrick she like starred in like really popular thrillers like joyride and then almost like nothing of note ever since this movie this movie is a black hole She's she's great yeah I feel like she's a fine artist now. Let me make sure that that's true. Yeah, I would love to find out that like she's doing good and creating like really like cool shit and stuff because I like I often I should wonder what happened to her and now I know this f- fucking Wicker Man movie happened to her. It's a curse. It's an actual horror movie. It, it ruined actual people. Is it an okay? So uh, that's another thing. Is it really a horror movie? Like Kate pointed out to me, this shot kind of like an action movie or a thriller. It's not really shot with any sort of. Well, it's like, not like ambiance or specific tone or anything that could like, I mean, horrific things happened in it to be sure, but I don't know if I'd call it a horror movie. It's certainly not a folk horror movie. Jared, if you were to, uh, you know, double feature something with Wicker Man or, you know, put something alongside it, if someone liked Wicker Man, what would they watch or consume after this? Audition by uh, Takashi Mika. Because it's about the same thing. It's about like chauvinism going and like fucking with the wrong bitch. It's about, uh, oh, oh, and just tonally, the first 45 minutes of audition is like a quirky, like slightly off kilter, like romantic comedy. And then it fucking isn't. And I think I've recommended it before. Audition is just one of my all-time favorite movies. It's one of the best horror movies of all time. Probably the best Japanese horror movie of all time. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it has that same thing where it's like, oh, it's like a weird tone. It's a little bit sinister, but it's mostly just kind of funny and quirky. And, oh, no, my God. Oh, my God. No, this is just <laughs> a fucking hor- horrifying movie. Uh, and then an- another one that's not at all like that. And it's not a movie that I recommend to many people unless you're, like, not squeamish in the slightest. But one of the best movies about, like, some... Western people going and contacting like an indigenous tribe uh, who uh, and, and them trying to like assert like them trying to colonize them, trying to assert their righteousness onto them, then getting just completely fucking obliterated by it is cannibal Holocaust. It's got a very similar structure in that way to a lot of the things that we we're talking about, about those modern day, quote unquote, martyrs. Um, but cannibal Holocaust is just like a really like historic horror film and that it basically invented the found footage genre and, 20 years before Blair Witch, 25 years before Blair Witch. That's another example of the 70s and like going to some like remote place, judging the shit out of the locals and uh, them just proving you right a little bit to uh, at your expense. Gross. Yeah, Uh, don't watch it unless you like really don't have uh, like uh, any sort of like squeam squeamish factor to you. So you'll definitely watch it plenty, Kate. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would strongly high, high on my list. Strongly encourage you not to watch Cannibal Holocaust. Kate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what would you double up with, uh, Wicker Man? Uh, I think you should go because I'm thinking. Ah, uh, well, um, <laughs> I wouldn't double it up with a film. I'm going to give you a book. Give you some wow. literature. I'm going to give you a chore, which actually I do firmly believe that if you give someone, unless they specifically ask for this book. If you give someone a book as a gift, you gave them a chore, which I, I find personally. I disagree so deeply. 
Yeah, I don't think reading a book is like that big of a commitment. I mean, if you give them like War and Peace, that's different than like giving them that little thing that you're holding. Little thing. I mean, this thing is oh okay. It's it's not it's not insubstantial. It's three hundred and three pages at least. Okay, that's not bad. So we that's got a couple, Alan, a couple of good paths. Alan Moore's Voice of the Fire. As I said, podcasting is a visual medium. I'm holding it up so it. <laughs> Um, it is a, uh, a, it, I mean, I guess on its surface, it's a collection of 12 short stories, but they're all kind of connected and it follows, um, where Alan Moore is from in Northampton. It's all set in that same location and it goes all the way from like pre, uh, Christianization, pre Romanization stories. And it goes all the way up to the near future. Yeah. Cause this was written in the nineties and they have some that like bumps it to like, the late 90s or y2k and it basically shows similar to wicker man where it's like these pagan ideas these beliefs these uh uh animistic cultures that uh existed at the time like they have power they have force and they they will never go away no matter how hard we try to repress it and they they pop up in certain points of conflict in certain points of change so in these 12 different stories or in 12 different eras of british history but they're showing it in a way that's not like a british history textbook would do it it's showing it in ways of like what people who are still attached to the indigenous culture of mm. northampton would believe and even and actually they have a couple stories of those who you know have nothing to do with that where it's someone born in northampton now and like 2023 has no idea about the pagan rituals or uh traditions of the past but it it shows how that like that shit will pop up whether you like it or not which mm -hmm. kind of sounds like a certain movie that we just talked about i can't i can't help thinking of alan d moore who's a totally different human being um he he, he made the battlestar galactica remake he made mm -hmm. outlander like he's just a fantastic TV man. Mm. Um, what I uh, for some reason the the movie that is pounding in in my brain as a companion piece is Princess Mononoke. Oh, really? Like, which is also strangely about like pagan understanding or indigenous understanding uh, ramming up against modernization and like the hubris of of the person from the industrial culture and how that hubris is answered. It's also just one of my favorite movies. It's like a weird pairing. I mean, the obvious pairing is Midsommar, like, yeah. but Mononoke is kicking around. And then since you brought up a book, I read this great book called From Here to Eternity, which is written by uh, a mortician named Caitlin Doherty, I believe. Oh, yeah, my girlfriend just read that. She was waxing about it like It's a great yeah. book. And it's a it's like there's there's something about the pagan understanding of mortality and death that I also think is in the Wicker Man, like you know, obviously they're condemning this man to death against his consent, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which is like a deeply carceral action. So in a weird way, it's it's something of his own medicine coming to like bite him. Mm. But in the the Western understanding of death, the Christian understanding of death is like 
it's both like a strange enshrining of death as the moment where you actually get to start living your true life and also a, a like insane avoidance of any kind of acknowledgement of death. And, and I find that like a lot of pagan cultures are much more friendly with death and they start integrating the reality of it very early on. And From Here to Eternity is a great book that studies the death practices of a bunch of different cultures, which wow. I think could be a nice companion piece to this crazy little musical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to grab it and start reading it uh, off her shelf. Um, well, what are you saying about... Mom, you ever think no. about dying? <laughs> you know think about dying? Oh, what is that comment I made about the fucking Wicker Man remake? <laughs> that Wicker Man remake walked so Barbie could run. <laughs> <laughs> Truly stupid. Truly dumb. Truly stupid. Truly um, stupid. I I lost it, but I'm sure it was clever. So just think I was clever. Thank you. <laughs> From here to eternity, death practices. Uh, being friendly with death. Being comfortable with death. Um, uh, Christian being a sort of like a hyper denial of death slash an enshrinement of it. God being it. morbidly fascinated and also in denial. I'll text it in like a day or two later. Yeah. When I click. We talk about repression. Like <laughs> Christian, like Christian, Christian, like Christianity has so many like strange, morbid fascinations. And that's, I think that is a product of like Christianity as a religion repressing the fact that we die. Well, like, that's what uh, that gets brought up yeah. in the film, actually. Where what is it? Christopher Lee um, is like, "Oh, your uh, your God died and came back to life and got transubstantiated and is like essentially a zombie." It's like, "Oh, isn't that cute? Isn't that interesting? That like we're the ridiculous ones, but like what you <laughs> think?" It's like, yeah, and then it, it shortly after that it flashes back to. How are we taking communion? Taking communion, like, yeah. like someone, someone is over here, like role playing cannibalism. You know, <laughs> what was yeah, it? Oh, when we did the episode on Valhalla Rising, which is still a garbage film, they did the same thing. Oh yeah, I'm, there's like so many. I mean, Valhalla Rising is another one where it's uh, the the old pagan beliefs in Scotland are getting steamrolled by the Catholics. Um, and that's another one where they like to make that same uh they make that same joke i guess like yeah. aren't you the one that like eats your god's flesh or like my favorite part of the movie the northmen is when they're like oh out over like 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 you know scars guard is like you know kind of like insidious and kind of fucking with them a little bit and they're trying to figure out what's going on and it's like one of them's like maybe it's the christians their god is a jew nailed to a tree <laughs> True. It's pretty metal when you think about it, you know? <laughs> Hulks. Oh, I thought of another thing that people should read that's about alternative community. Ooh, oh, what is it? It's called Matrix by Lauren Groff. And it's about a nun who turned an abbey into like a kind of city-state of women sort of under the eye of the Catholic Church. So It's great. Uh, uh, well, well, we learned from the new Wicker Man that like bitches can't run things or else it's gonna get like fucking crazy man you know yeah there's just gonna be so much eating pussy yeah uh, we can't have <laughs> Which is the thing, that's another thing that upset me about the 2006 w wicker man i was like 
these are lesbians. Like, just let them be lesbian. Oh, that actually, like, why are they so obsessed with men? Yeah, why are they, like, like sexually enslaving men when they have each other? When they have each other. Well, I kind of thought that about the initial Wicker Man, too. Or maybe, you know, it was 1970 so, or 73, so it's a little too racy already. It's like, these were gay people. They were. Yeah, no, I had that thought, too, where it's just, like, the true, I think the true fullness of that of that colony would be, like, like the the one sort of the one the one sort of thing that gave me pause or made me be like uh, about watching the nineteen seventy three Wicker Man was that it was so like heteronormative yeah yeah and yeah. I think like the real fullness of like a pagan colony would be like everyone's pan and and nobody really cares yeah and, they would all be gender fluid and pansexual they would just yeah be, <laughs> exactly yeah you can admit wherever they want was was remade competently today. Like I would expect that to be yeah. explored fully. And well, and that's fine. Like for a 1973 version, like this is already radical enough. It's like, yeah. yeah. At, at the end of the day, it's a commercial endeavor and they wanted to get it in the theaters, even though like they only did as a, yeah, it was movie. tough enough just showing heterosexual orgies. Yeah, truly. Heterosexual sex <laughs> oh, but, at all. But they, they do it in like such a sweet way where there's like all this slow-mo and there's like freeze framing. Yeah, like, <laughs> on the field. There's, so like, many women on top. It's great. Close up of a, like a snail with its antennae oh, extending no. too messily. <laughs> um, Kate, this is so fun. Thanks for bringing the Wicker Man. Uh, any final thoughts before we sign off? Uh my only thought that I have is um, it's been lovely to be here. You've both been a joy. And corn rigs and barley rigs and corn rigs for Mary. Listen, as as a child that grew up in the great state of Illinois, any mention of corn is delightful. You're welcome. That was just for you. <laughs> so... Here is another uh, great edition of Concessions. I am Dan. I'm Jared. And please, when I die, make sure I'm protected by the ejaculation of serpents. What <laughs> of the strumpets of yore, of wenches and bawdy house queens by the score, but I sing of a baggage that we all adore, the landlord's daughter. Oh, her lips are as roses, her wine is a treat, her whiskey is good and her figure is neat, and while she is serving her bitter, she's sweet. The landlord's daughter, you'll never love another. Although she's not the kind of girl to take home to your mother. Her ale, it is lively and strong to the taste. She's brewed with discretion and never with haste. You can have all you like if you swear not to waste. The landlord's daughter, and when her name is mentioned, the parts of every gentleman do stand up at attention. 
Now there's Jane of the Blossom and all of the Crown, pretty Kate of the Garter and Saddle in town. But Dolly, who keeps a red heart of renown, but I'll take the landlord's daughter. Oh, nothing can delight so as does the path that lies between her left toe and her right toe.